My name is Jennifer Fern, and today I'll be hosting this episode of the City Road podcast here at the University of Sydney. I'm a senior lecturer here in the Sydney School of Architecture, Design and Planning. And for today's episode, I have two amazing guests who are sitting with me in the studio. I'd like to introduce first Julie Willis. She is the Dean of Faculty of Architecture, Building and Planning at the Melbourne School of Design. She's an authority on the history of Australian architecture from around 1890 to 1950, and has undertaken a number of significant projects researching modern hospital architecture in Australia, for example. She's also worked on the importance of public buildings and community, civic and national identities, and architecture during wartime. She's also worked on the questions of equity and diversity in the architectural profession. And her current research includes writing a new short history of Australian architecture and the transmission of architectural knowledge through professional networks of architecture. And my second wonderful guest here sitting to my right is Vikram Prakash, who teaches at the University of Washington. He is the Director of Undergraduate Interdisciplinary Programs in the Office of the Dean at the College of Built Environments at Washington. He is a founding member of the Global Architectural History Teaching Collaborative. He himself is also a fellow podcast host, so we're looking forward to hearing more about that. The name of his podcast is called Architecture Talk in the United States. It is a bi-weekly podcast with curated conversations on contemporary architecture and architectural thinking. And his books, amongst others, include Chandigarh's The Corbusier, The Struggle for Modernity in Postcolonial India, and of course, A Global History of Architecture, authored with Francis Ching and Mark Yarzabek. Welcome to the show, Vikram. Welcome to the show, Julie. Thank you. Thank, Thank you for you having so. it. Thank you so much. So I want to kick things off maybe with a question to Julie first, and we want to talk a little bit about the book that you and your colleague Philip Goad at the University of Melbourne had authored a few years back called The Encyclopedia of Australian Architecture. Could you tell us a little bit about how you started this project and what were some of the key developments in Australian architecture that you both wanted to highlight? So the book came about, it was actually a commission from Cambridge University Press. So they came to us and said, we would. We think this might be a really interesting project. Are you interested in doing it? Uh, you, you don't tend to knock those kinds of opportunities back when they come your way. Right. Uh, but taking on a project like that, you, you have this incredible sense of trepidation as well. Here you are embarking on a huge project, one that could be very contentious, partly because how can you be encyclopedic? But we will face that issue between um, knowing that the sources on Australian architecture were limited, many of them were quite old, uh, and there hadn't been something that had been comprehensive. This was an opportunity to kind of uh, highlight a whole lot of new work, uh, to change the balance away from the sort of Sydney and Melbourne uh, focus of much of the work that had gone before, uh, and open up to wider possibilities. And so it was an exciting project from that point of view. What it allowed us to do is to pick some things up. So uh, my own work, I've done a lot of work on the history of women architects, so we were able to make sure that they were present in there. By a quirk of the alphabet, the first entry is on Aboriginal architecture, mm -hmm. uh, which is rather helpful. Uh, that meant that we could ground the um, project in, in a way that others hadn't thought about. So the, the previous sort of general history on Australian architecture had been published in 19. 1968, uh, and there hadn't been a huge amount since then. There are various things. I'm not going to go through the whole historiography of, of Australian architecture, uh, but this this was a major thing that it, there hadn't been much before it. So it must have been a difficult task to choose what was to be included and what was not to be included with over 
over a thousand entries that are actually in such a huge project. So what was the process of selection like, per se? Well, it's interesting that there had been an attempt to do something like this about 20 years before and it had fallen over. And we were fortunate enough to be handed that material. So we had something to start with. Uh, but you do what you do and you talk to your colleagues. We got a whole lot of very senior people into the room. Uh, we asked them what they thought and, and got them to suggest entries. That meant that uh, around Australia we could be a bit more balanced. So we were uh, making sure that we had colleagues from Western Australia and from Queensland uh, and all states and territories uh, putting forward who they thought was important rather than us judging, getting them to identify so that you got this this broader representation. And the other question is around, you mentioned Aboriginal architecture as one of the first centuries of the book. How do Indigenous contributions perhaps fit into this nationalist framework of something, that, the rubric of Australian architecture? Well, it, the, the entry is by Paul Memmott, you know, arguably the godfather of the study of uh, Aboriginal architecture in Australia. So uh, and that, that meant that he could, he was just given a, a brief, you write what you think is right, Paul. Um, we'll give you a certain number of words, off you go. Um, but it, it, it then meant that we were talking about architecture that had occurred in what is now the nation of Australia, essentially continental Australia plus a few islands. And um, it was any architecture that had appeared. And we took the broadest possible uh, definition of what our architecture is. Uh, so it, it's present in that entry, but it also picks up in a couple of other entries where there are key groups that have are strongly identified with Indigenous architecture. And I think when we think of Australian architecture, maybe in the popular imagination, we think of terms like colonialism, modernism, post-colonialism. Is there a way of thinking about architecture in this country via country, kind of in a new way? Is that something that is explored? Is that something that Paul Memmott looks at? Uh, I, I think uh, Paul's entry, I think, is very much about demonstrating um, the Aboriginal architecture that was produced pre-contact and also post-contact, uh, and so that he's giving a, a history of, of that. Um, we knew that biography would be a large part of this, uh, but we also wanted things on style, typology, um, movements, uh, major essays on education, uh, various things like that. Uh, and we had a rough sense of how you would do that. So uh, it, there's a very large database that sits behind it. All the entries are categorised one way or another. Uh, you pitch it out there and then you go and commission and see what comes back. Um, it... it it caused lots of dilemmas. Uh, you, you're trying to write about places that have identities now. Um, so there are state-based entries, which are important because that's a lot of where the research has come from. But the best part about this, and I think it probably comes to your other part of the question, is that the encyclopedia unusually is indexed so that you can start in an index and then, of course, it's cross-referenced as you move through it. You can trace any journey you like through this. And we rather like that democratic way of starting somewhere and then just following whichever trail you were interested in across the entire work. So it's not meant to be read one way or another. It's meant to be something that people find what they're interested in and 
perhaps identify that there are still gaps. Of course there are. But it wasn't a linear history, one way of saying this. Right. And I think this is a great place to bring in Vikram here, who's worked quite a bit on both national borders and national identities, say, countries like India, and more significantly, the book that you co-authored with Mark Yarzenbeck on global architectural history. Could you speak a little bit about maybe some of the tensions between nationalist ways of thinking about architecture and the global? Yeah, and stylistic ways, and who's included and who's not included. You know, I was... As you were describing your project, Julie, uh, I was very sympathetic to all the dilemmas <laughs> that you were facing. I was like, yeah, yeah, I know exactly yeah. what you're talking about. And the task of curating, you know, what gets put in and what gets put out is a really difficult one. And you find out that that is exactly, you know, it comes down to the 800 pages specified to you by the publisher which then becomes the uh, framework by which uh, you create, you inevitably, whether you like it or not, one way or the other, produce a selection, i.e. some kind of uh, unstated or stated representation of what is to be included and what is not to be included. So that's a, a necessary but unpleasant thing you have to deal with. And so our strategy for opening up the possibility of how you're reading it, I, uh, like what you were saying, the many itineraries through the text, yes. uh, was to organize the book um, by time cuts, uh, which, uh, you know, instead of doing national histories and having a chapter on Chinese architecture and Indian architecture and Russian and French and so on, we had... 800 CE and what's happening around the globe and 1200 CE and what's happening around the globe. And we hoped that with that heuristic, uh, there would be a way to sort of democratize again mm. the representation of knowledge, uh, expose ourselves to the gaps in our own understanding of the world, and at the same time, uh, uh, you know, enable people to, to make their own connections, uh, simply in part that occur via juxtaposition of things that may not necessarily have any uh, actual, let's say, historical coherence, but nevertheless they can be juxtaposed. But then people can also juxtapose uh, and, and create their, as you're teaching using this, this, ours is a textbook, so it's a little different, mm -hmm. of course. But uh, our hope was that uh, faculty who were using the textbook would then construct their own itineraries and narratives through the textbook. So it was not a textbook set up in the classical sense. Here's the narrative, give it to the students to read. Then you reinforce and sort of supplement it in the classroom. It was like, here, are, here is text, and now make your narrative out of this and help students see how narratives are constructed. I mean, it seems like both of these models of using uh, modes of comprehensive knowledge, you're allowing both uh, teachers and students to construct their own canon of architecture, so to speak, or anti-canon yes. of architecture. But maybe in Vikram, your case, you know, specifically, is there a model of global history that's being put forward just by the very nature of you trying to put different countries into context with each other? And uh, global historians like Sebastian Conrad, for example, have written that the best model is of that of integration, is showing how different societies around the world uh, came up uh, in respect with one another. Is that something that the book tries to do? Uh, yes, uh, one way or the other. I mean, uh, let me put it this way. You know, when we published the first edition of the book, we were actually accused of being almost like an encyclopedia. It's an insult, <laughs> it's isn't an it? Insult. It is an insult. <laughs> 
They said, what is this? We need a textbook. Where are the narratives? Where are the grand narratives? Where are the big stories? You never told us, you know, what is the grand projet and, you know, the masterworks and so on. And and the publisher came back and said, this is what the readers and youth faculty say. And, you know, you know, what, what, what are we going to do? And so we actually ended up, you know, contracting, let's say, the case studies a little bit more and producing larger introductory narratives for each time cut. Yes. And by the second edition and now by the third edition, which has also been published, uh, you know, we feel it's we, we have start to have some kind of a narrative about a certain time period, if you like, what's happening in the world. Uh, so we can start telling stories. So, uh, so yeah, it, so it's global in the sense that, you know, Sebastian Conrad's uh, work on globalization, of course, is certainly a reference point for us. Uh, you know, it's, it's parallel work, I would say. Um, and uh, rather than integration, uh, our term would really be uh, more uh, movement, juxtaposition, like recognition of the vast emptinesses in our knowledge, the gaps in our knowledge. It's as much a project of highlighting, you know, the, the, the things that we know nothing about, uh, which is uh, the kind of uh, implicit or even in many ways explicit political agenda of the book. It seems like the act of collating knowledge, right? Both in Julie, your case, the Encyclopedia for Australian Architecture, or Vikram, in your case, of Global Architectural History, even finding uh, what to include, what not to include in the precedents, um, is is already in itself a very grand task. I guess in terms of curriculum, both of you kind of brought this up in both of your narratives, is you know how does one use the Encyclopedia for teaching, or how does one use the Global Architectural History textbook uh, in teaching, and have you both had feedback from colleagues in ways of how your work has been received, I suppose, in the classroom? Well, I've, I, I certainly have, um, in that I find people telling me that they use the encyclopedia as a textbook. It's not meant to be so. But that's simply because the information that's contained within it doesn't appear anywhere else. So if you are doing a history of Queensland architecture, well, you have an opportunity of doing something that was published in 1959. There's more recent work that's just come out. But until that time, what you had to use was tracking your way through a number of entries in the encyclopedia uh, that gave you something to work on, that told your students that you there was a, actually a much bigger picture than the sort of uh, Australia-wide histories told you that just used it as a footnote and said something about the Queensland House and, mm -hmm. and maybe there are, it, it's all about sort of louvers and verandas. Um, much more complex stories can come through that. But I find it really strange to do that because in my own teaching I don't use it as a textbook. In fact, I don't use a textbook at all. Um, I, I think of it as a, it's a, a reference. But the interesting thing about this, I'm going to pick up on something that Vikram's talked about, is that uh, this understanding the revealing or the revealing of what's not known, we understand it as the authors or the editors, whether those consuming it understand it in that way, I'm not so sure about. Yeah, so or whether they want to understand it that uh, precisely. way. Precisely. Even more importantly, I think uh, it has been our, our experience is that uh, while we point out the gaps and in the maps and so on, the echo that comes back from, because ours is explicitly set up as a textbook yeah. and, you know, the publisher markets it very aggressively uh, as a textbook, is 
that uh, uh, we are competing with several other textbooks that are, of course, well established in the marketplace. Uh, and the standard critique is, well, you know, they have a very good, clear narrative. Uh, for, keeping it simple. Keeping it simple. And the main things are included. And, uh, and, and you are telling us to do the work on our own and to realize things that are missing. So, you know, the expectation of what is one to do in the classroom and how is to wants to use the textbook and whether or not, uh, you know, teaching can be accountable to gaps is, is, is a fair enough thing, question, I think, because a faculty member put into the classroom, you know, probably a junior faculty member uh, to teach a large survey class, uh, you know, who has just finished a PhD on, on uh, you know, 1950s, mid-century, cool modernism like me or one of us. <laughs> Uh, and suddenly is being asked to teach pre-Columbian 13th century Chimu, and they're like, where is uh, this? <laughs> <laughs> Produces significant anxieties. Uh, and so you, you want the textbook to be an aid rather than a challenge. So we understood that, and that is how, uh, you know, we, Mark uh, and I, uh, with other people, um, came about making the Global Architectural History Teaching Collaborative basically as a teaching community, saying, okay, we are all in the same boat. Uh, it's a difficult material to teach. We all, you know, can agree that we want to teach uh, globally or more expansively and more representative, representatively. Uh, so uh, instead of blaming the textbook, uh, let's start making a community. Let's start producing teaching materials and let's start sharing them. And that's basically the concept of the GAHTC, uh, where we have produced, you know, over, over almost 300 lectures uh, in about 100 modules uh, where you can use lectures as packages and, and teach with them or you can pick and choose your lectures. So again, providing teaching aids uh, to enable faculty to walk into the classroom with, you know, semi-comfort com semi that they know a little bit something about the material that they're teaching and then start learning it and becoming more comfortable with it and opening themselves to it, opening students to it in that process and hopefully setting in motion a, a way of uh, setting in motion an, an inquiry and an inquisitiveness which then hopefully lead to something. I think both of you are suggesting far more both elastic and flexible models of understanding these examples of architecture. But I suppose maybe another question to both of you is, how do we move beyond these national boundaries or the nation state? Many students around the world, when they learn about architecture, they think of American architecture or French architecture, Chinese architecture, Australian architecture, and it is often difficult to get them to think more broadly. How do we put all of these different countries into dialogue in different societies? I mean, and even within, let's say, Julie, your example, just within Australia alone. Well, of course, Australia wasn't a nation until 1901, so to talk about 19th century Australia is to talk of a fiction. They're, they're independent colonies, um, and, and that's the case for a lot of places. There mm -hmm. are places that are... Um, occupied or the boundaries have changed. So there, there is this real tension with using national, modern national boundaries for this. 
Nevertheless, um, there are reasons why you might do this. So the location of records, for instance, where are you actually doing the research? You, they're often contained within um, national boundaries because someone owns the records. And you might be moving in different places to, to put them together in certain situations. Uh, but there are aggregations that make sense. So maybe they're not nations, but they're regions, and they have distinct characteristics, and they might do so at particular frames of time. So you're kind of damned if you do and damned if you don't. I don't. There right. is no good answer right. to this. Mm. But I like that elasticity. I like thinking of architectural history of not having any edges to it because I like the idea that it's not a complete thing. And that's that's the problem... I think that a lot of students make is that they think it's a complete thing. They think it's done. Um, the the um, the sort of frontiers, um, and that's a contested word, of course, of it must be more recent. The mm. past is all done, isn't it? Mm. Right, right, right. And well, we know that's not the case. <laughs> we know there are so many things we can right, do. Right, so right. it's that, well, presented as a contested thing. Understand that its its history mm. today is not its history of the past of a hundred years ago, a thousand years ago, ten thousand years ago, and talk about that. Make it part of the discussion. Yeah, no, uh, you know. So, uh, uh, of course, the, the nation state perspective and the national perspective is something. Um, um, my, a lot of my other scholarship is very closely concerned with, in particular, the Indian nation state and its formation in the 1950s, 60s, and its uh, its adventures with modernism. And we all know that architectural history, coming out of art history, if you like, was produced as a process of verification for nations in the 19th century. Uh, and it continues in many ways to serve that purpose. Uh, so that's a deeply entrenched uh, legacy that along with the fact of national things like national archives and the location mm. of archives and so on uh, is something that has to be acknowledged. And of course, it's also a political reality that in many ways the nations are uh, still a strong uh, administrative uh, unit of, of the globe, uh, like the United Nations, for instance. Uh, but I do think that while the new student body is looking for coherent and completed narratives, I think they f my sense is that students feel perhaps much more than our generations to be much more global. I mean, oh, I, yes. think, I think they, they, you know, when I moved from India to the United States, I felt like I was moving from one culture and country to another. You know, it's like a massive transplantation. And I'm talking the 1980s. Today, I feel that your basic student, it's like, yeah, okay, whatever. You know, it's, it's, the world is much more fluid. In my case, in the United States, they don't think of themselves as very, uh, you know, America-centric. Uh, I mean, I know the rest of the world doesn't think so, but, <laughs> <laughs> but let me bring you news from the frontier yes. <laughs> that it's not so. Uh, and uh, so the sensibility that is required to, and what I would call a planetary sensibility, much more than, let's say, a global sensibility, just to distinguish sort of the valences of those two words, mm. uh, a planetary sensibility 
particularly given their deep uh, sensitivity to the ecological crisis, which is necessarily a planetary crisis. Uh, uh, besides data and globalization and, and banking, which is global, and culture, which is rapidly accessible across the globe, I think uh, prepares them and opens them up to a different way of thinking. I think the nation, while it's a very important uh, unit, uh, and certainly for, for, for me and for many scholars of our, our generations, uh, I think for the, for the current st undergraduate student body, uh, of course, this is a generalization, but I think they are open to a different sensibility, uh, which I think is, should be cultivated rather than checked and pushed into more nationalistic and, in our case, regional boundaries. I think encouraging some of that curiosity, as both of you have highlighted, is, is really powerful. And I think maybe one more term to throw into our conversation here is perhaps also the global south, right? We have the idea that, interestingly enough, Australia is a global north country mm -hmm. located in the global south. Right. And there's interesting ways that students tend to understand, say, um, other countries or regions, say Latin America or, say, Southeast Asia, that are in the same part of the world as Australia, but they are in a very different both cultural, geographic, social, economic uh, set of contingencies, and they've developed architecture uh, in response to that. Could you both speak a little bit about maybe the Global South? Maybe how does that fit into some of the projects that both of you have tried to take on in this regard? Uh, we have not actively uh, taken that on as a category. So in that sense, I would not describe our project as, if, if you want, actively Marxist or leftist, uh, in that it uh, it does not begin with an active acknowledgement of the fundamental structural power uh, imbalances in the in the world, which is not to say that those are not correct, accurate, and true. Uh, but that is not the undoing of that is not the explicit and focused agenda. It is, of course, the implicit and indirect agenda, or one of the agendas of the book. Uh, and our work and the Global Teaching Collaborative. While undoing, uh, you know, the nation-state power asymmetries uh, of various kinds, along with, you know, philogocentric power asymmetries, like, for instance, the work that uh, I believe currently, you know, around yeah. women and feminist uh, yeah. representation and so on and so forth, all these are a part of the discourse. We are, we are trying to work at a... a, a at a more generalized displacement of knowledge, decentering of knowledge kind of level, that we, that I, the nation state and the region, if you like, have such a strong hold uh, on the discourse that sort of undoing it and is the expectation to open it up to all kinds of other uh, decentered knowledge constructions, which would include certainly. Uh, uh, decolonization uh, of the of the world, which was with, with addressing global south. Yeah, it's very interesting. The global south and this issue of nationalism, often architecture in in countries of the global south, is held so tightly yeah. as a symbol of nation. Yeah, and different pasts are recovered to to make that story. Sometimes that story is fabricated and and, and not. Um, nastily, mm -hmm. but it's just things are brought together from the local to create a new construction to support the current nation. Um, and that makes it quite 
quite difficult because it's in the service of something else. So the architecture is being repurposed. I think perhaps in Australia it's not repurposed in this way to the same extent. Um, and you also suffer from, and Vikram, you've referred to this, is a lack of knowledge, a right. lack of research, a lack of understanding that means that icons are still put forward from right. such places. But we understand less about the ordinary, the, the, that that hasn't been valued at one point in, t in time and documented. Um, and, but that's where the really interesting stories are. That's where we need to be moving to. Right. And we need to uncover all of its history, whether it's um, politically correct or not politically correct. Right. And so it, it just points to this desperate need for much more research and much more interest in these places. Yeah, I, mean, I want to underline that point which you just said. Like when I was schooled in India, there was the, this whole thing about, well, where is India's you know history and you know you tell me and they revised the you know accreditation requirements in schools of architecture to say india must be in the title of the textbooks i think we to be you know i'm like what 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 is this you know uh is this what decolonization looks like uh and and one can understand it in the context of a freedom movement or something you know where you are to produce a certain kind of a, a focused opposition but well, we want to move beyond that, and 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 this is not just the case with India. Uh, this is throughout the, let's say, the global south, not just the global north, where you know the nation is, as you're saying, in many cases, the nation as nation of we all besides its political boundaries and the visas, it is already a fabrication, and then you know this fa production of knowledge to verify that fabrication yes. is a problem everywhere. Yes. So it has to be undone. I see our work as contributive to the project of, you know, uh, decentering that kind of thinking. Yeah. So this uh, this constant need to complicate things, yeah, yeah. which I think is very important as yeah. part of these projects, yeah. is to say, it's it's not a simple narrative. It's not something that's in the service of a government or a. a, a collective of people who think of themselves as a nation, there are more complex things here. Um, that things aren't as they seem. And that's, I think that's the, the whole thing about architectural history for me is that it, it's not easy, it's not simple, it's not straightforward. If you, as you pick away at the layers or the edges of it, it unravels in odd ways. Yes. That's what makes it exciting. Exactly. And, and that's what the story of, uh, of humanity or even, you know, uh, multi-species uh, uh, kind of, if, if we keep unraveling the edges, the story becomes more and more interesting, uh, if more and more complicated. And, and if you're happy accepting that complica complicatedness, uh, and and give up the desire for the grand narrative, then it's actually quite interesting and exciting uh, yeah. place to be. Yes, <laughs> it sounds like we're both all here at the fringes. So that's a really fantastic um, way to maybe close out our conversation with one last maybe question to both of you, which is, in finishing both of these projects, whether it's the encyclopedia or the textbook, what was your most interesting discovery as you were finishing up these projects? The most uh, unusual or perhaps most enlightening uh, thing that you discovered about, say, Australian architecture or global architectural history that you might want to share with our listeners? So I can say that in the process of putting together the entries, we had fantastic moments where two people sitting on uh, opposite sides of the table and opposite sides of the country who just suddenly went, but my person is your person. 
Ah, so what I learned from this that was the mobility of architects was far, far greater than I had ever understood. Um, it might seem incredibly naive, but I'd been taught that people left England and they came to Australia and they set up in practice. What the encyclopedia taught me is that they might have left England or Scotland or Germany or... uh, And they would come to Australia, but they may not stay still. And so they're part of one of my new projects is to look at those who came and trained in Australia and then went on to other places. So there's this fantastic architect called John Smedley who goes off to Hong Kong in the 1860s, sets up in practice is in Japan in 1868 at the Meiji Restoration, sets up a practice in Yokohama in 1872 and does this sort of moving around the region. And, in fact, you can see the rise and fall of economies in John Smedley's um, trips because as soon as the economy goes down one place, he moves on. And I learned my, my biggest thing is that architects follow the money. Yes, of course. <laughs> no surprise there. <laughs> uh, well, for me, um, as I was saying earlier, uh, kind of uh, one of the moments of reckoning was uh, as we looked at the time cuts, we suddenly realized the huge gaps in our own understanding of the world. And one of those was uh, uh, learning about, uh, well, you know, Native America or pre-Columbian America uh, and, you know, suddenly starting to read and uh, and realizing the sort of immensity and complexity of the architectural and, you know, civilizational matrix of Central, South and Northern America, you know, going way back, uh, you know, 10,000 years ago onwards or 15,000 years ago onwards uh, and realizing the sort of how uh, slim the availability of knowledge of this is but actually how vast it is and how it is spread across in archaeology and other disciplines and how we have to sort of start pulling it together Uh, and in doing that you know uh, what was quite fascinating for me as I started to learn the let's say, you know, the intellectual ecology of uh, the platform mounds and so on. I was like, what are they about and why are they constructed the way they are? Now, this is not in the book, but for me, well, the fascinating thing was actually I found how resonant it was with things that I grew up with as a nominally practicing Hindu in India. And I was like, you know, Vikram, you're just projecting. But let's go with it. Uh, and, 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 and as I looked more and more, I learned and I thought, you know, this is maybe projection, but maybe there are also continuities. And then I found and I learned through, you know, for instance, some work that Mark Jarzombek did later on, that where I live now in Seattle, uh, that region, when, the, when you look at the native cultures, was directly connected, for instance, all the way to Japan around the salmon cultures mm-hmm. of the north. And that was one continuous culture. So uh, I, it, it just cracked open a world for me connecting Asia. It's not just, well, they came across the Bering Strait during the last ice ages. No, no, no. There was living cultures well beyond that that were actually connected, which is why 
pithouses are common across Jomon, uh, 5th century Japan, and the Navajo down in uh, North America. So, so th- that realization opened a completely new world to me, and, and, and it and induced me to sort of start to actually produce a new sense of place for myself in Seattle, uh, where now I have decided that uh, every solstice I'm going to hold uh, ceremonies at home, invite the neighborhood and learning from Aussie and New Zealand examples. We begin by remembering all the native communities who have been here before us and then recognizing some of their ceremonies and then hybridizing some of them via my own Hindu culture, uh, but giving a, a, but interpreted in some way through a modernist post-colonial lens, you know, with some <laughs> cool English commentary and good food. You know, so... <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, I, I found it in the end a way to, because, uh, you know, I live in the United States and I've exceeded, do I, am I, am I simply exceeding to the benefits of white settler culture? Uh, yes. But am I also sort of contributing and deconstructing that in some way? It has been an empowering process. Well, it's been wonderful to hear from both of you about both your meditations pre and post project, as well as some of your thoughts for students of architecture. So thank you again, Julie, for being on the show. Thank you, Vikram. Thank you. Thank you for having me.